some of these uh, hymns that we're singing right now, like, like the one we just uh, sang, several of the psalms um, have that tune. So we'll, uh, you know, we usually use, use this time and start getting familiar with uh, some of these uh, newer ones. Um, so we'll, we'll sing that one some more, get a little bit more familiar with it. And then uh, you can expect, I think there's at least three or four psalms that have uh, that tune. Um, so we'll be able to incorporate those in a little bit easier. Um, so uh, tonight we are uh, continuing to look at uh, how to read the Bible and look in particular now at this na- last section on reading and interpreting uh, the prophets. And uh, just by way of a, a quick little review, um, one of the things we saw in our um, last time together was that the main, the main function of prophets the main emphasis of their prophetic ministry, the things they're saying, the things that they're writing, is to be understood in this sort of broader category as covenant enforcers. Right? The people of Israel are under this Mosaic covenant. They have uh, laws and statutes and commandments that they are um, required to keep. And as a nation... If they don't keep them, they come under the curses of that covenant. And of course, if they do keep them, they will experience the blessings. And we saw that very often the things that the prophets are speaking about, the the kinds of transgressions that they are um, writing about are specifically tied to specific violations of the Mosaic law. And uh, just by one way of example, you know, we looked at um, Isaiah and uh, we saw there that, um, um, that charge that he had against the people of Judah for adding house to house. And, you know, that wasn't just about, you know, being wealthy and having multiple houses, but it was tied to the promises of land and the allotments that each tribe and each clan was to have. And you had these Um, wicked rulers who were exploiting people and taking the land that belonged to them and never returning it, never observing anything like uh, the year of Jubilee. And so very often it's the case that much of what the prophets are writing is not necessarily, um, you know, future predictions, Uh, They're not always saying this is what's going to happen in the future, but much of their writings are about how Israel and Judah as nations violated the covenant of God and were therefore coming under those uh, curses of the law. But even though much of the prophets are writing about these covenant violations and are applying the Mosaic covenant to their various contemporary situations, of course, it is also the case that the prophets do predict the future, right? That's, that's one of the things that they do. Even, even, in fact, some of these curses that are tied to covenant violations involve um, future predictions as to what's going to happen to the nation because they've violated the covenant, And so this evening, we're going to look at this aspect of the prophet's ministry, this aspect of um, foretelling. 
right? Um, or, 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 or forth telling, t- telling about things that are going to happen in the future. Uh, but as we do, I want to begin by asking this uh, particular question, and it's really somewhat of a, just a sort of a thought experiment to help get our wheels turning uh, a little bit. Uh, but we know, of course, that most of the writings of the prophets, you can think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, much of these writings weren't written until the middle of the 8th century B.C., probably starting in the 750s, possibly a little bit earlier, but mostly in the 8th century. But we also know that prophets were around before them. You can think of Elijah and Elisha. Uh, You can think a little bit further back to uh, Samuel and uh, also various prophets in uh, the book of Judges. And uh, the question is, why do you think that the writing ministry of the prophets didn't really begin in full until the middle of the 8th century B.C.? And, And then it remained pretty consistent up until a little after the return from exile, right? So we, we, ha- we have, again, Elijah is recognized as one of the greatest prophets, you know, probably like second in line to Moses in these days, and yet, he, you know, there's no book of Elijah, right? Uh, we have narratives that tell us about his, his life and ministry, but there's, no, there's nothing equivalent right, to the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah, or anything like that. These particular writing prophets didn't start doing this aspect of their ministry until a later time. And then again, it, it ends again after the return from exile. And the question is, why did this happen? Why did they just get to their uh, writing ministry in this particular moment in time? And I would suggest that a breaking point in the covenant relationship between Israel and, uh, you know, of course, later Judah, uh, between those nations, the people of God, and God uh, was reached. A breaking point was reached around the 8th century B.C. At that point, God was now bringing the full force of the covenant curses against his people. And the prophets were going to have to prophesy and interpret for God's people the events that were about to be happening in their nations. Events like uh, the judgment and exile by the Assyrians and then later the Babylonians for the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, They were... They were um, needed to explain why these things are happening now. Uh, Why is this empire, these foreigners, these pagan nations like Assyria, why are they destroying our cities? What's what's going on right now? It's, It's tied to the fact that there is a very significant event within the life of God's people that's tied to his covenant. Uh, 
which is very often when you see writings being done. You can think of, you know, the explosion of the New Testament writings that surround the introduction of the New Covenant. You can think of all of the um, writings that were revealed um, and, and written down for the people of Israel during the days of the Exodus, right? Moses bringing the people out and in the wilderness, you know, writing the first five books. And um, it, this, is, this is all um, s- surrounding these major covenantal events in the, life, uh, the lives of God's people. And here, during this time, the 8th century, up until basically the return from exile, this is a significant period of time in the history of Israel that's tied to what's going on related to the covenant. So that's one of the things that the the prophets were were needed for, is to interpret and to explain what is going on in the world when these foreign nations are destroying the people who are called by God's name. You know, they're, they're expecting that this temple that was built would never be removed, right? It, 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 it represented the presence of God. And, and, and how could it be the case that these other weak nations with these false gods could destroy us? Well, that's what the prophets are explaining, right? They are saying to them, you have violated the covenant and now this is the judgment of God that is coming upon you. And this is really where another aspect of the prosthetic, uh, excuse me, prophetic ministry um, comes into play, particularly as it relates to the uh, future predictive elements of the prophets. This is what it was for. It prepared God's people for what was to come. It explained these various events and it served the purpose of facilitating their ongoing trust in him. Because as we'll see in, in, in a moment when we look at some of these texts, the general interpretation of people in the ancient world is when a nation with its gods conquered another nation with its gods, the stronger nation was proving that its gods were the true gods, and the conquered nation was the false gods. Now, if you're operating with that mindset, and here Judah and Israel is being destroyed, the logical conclusion for most people would be Yahweh's a false god. And the prophets are having to say to the people, no, 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 this is not the case. Yahweh is still the sovereign, and you are still to trust in him, even though the nation is being destroyed. So I want to consider um, this particular aspect of prophecy, this future telling aspect of it, and um, look at some of the purposes for it. Why did the prophets speak about things that were to come in the future? What are some of the purposes? So first of all, um, as I've already alluded to, prophetic prediction was intended to explain the coming 
exile, the coming judgments to God's people. I want you to uh, turn with me for a moment to Isaiah 36. And uh, we'll look at uh, several, uh, several passages tonight. Uh, but let's start off in um, Isaiah 36. And uh, I just want to read um, from this chapter in uh, verses 18 uh, to 20. Isaiah 36, and uh, we'll pick up in verse 18 and just read uh, down to verse 20. Uh, it says here, Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Yahweh will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Now, the context is that Assyria has already at this point destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And they've now been marching through the southern kingdom of Judah, wiping out all of its cities, all of its strongholds. And now, at this point, they are besieging the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is basically the only city that's left standing in all of Judah. And the Rab Shakah, which is basically this military leader from Assyria who's commanding the Assyrian army, he sends a message to King Hezekiah to be read to all the people. And he's saying that there's no use. He, he's mocking the people of God, mocking those in Jerusalem and saying that there's no use in resisting his army because no other gods have been able to stop their army. And the implication is, neither can Yahweh. Your God is a false god, Hezekiah, people of Jerusalem. And if you continue to trust in him, we will slaughter you. He's mocking God and sending a warning for them to surrender and to preserve their own lives. And again, this is an example of one of the ways that people thought about the gods of the nations. If your nation was destroyed, as was the case with some of these other cities that are mentioned here uh, with their gods, if, if any of your land was conquered, it was obviously the case that the conquering nation's gods were superior to yours. And again, he's, he's saying, we've demonstrated that our gods are the true gods by the fact that we've conquered all of these nations. We've conquered Samaria as well, who claims to have Yahweh as their God, no matter how confused that, that claim was. Now, one of the things that the prophets of Yahweh are doing 
uh, in, is predicting this coming exile. And they're doing so in order to explain to God's people that their exile, their defeats by these various nations, are not the result of superior gods defeating them. It is rather the result of the one true God's judgment against them for breaking the covenant. So again, they are countering the claim that other nations would make, would assume to be true, that if, a, that if Israel falls and if Judah falls, it means Yahweh is a false god. Well, the prophets throughout Isaiah, through, through Jeremiah and the other prophets, they're saying, you're going to be defeated. The Assyrians or the Babylonians, they're going to conquer you. You're going to lose. But it has nothing to do with Yahweh being a false god. It has everything to do with the fact that you've violated the covenant. And the curses of the covenant that long ago were predicted to fall upon you are now coming. Right? So they are countering these false claims by the other nations. And they are explaining the meaning of the coming exile and the defeat of God's people. So that's one of the things they do in their future predictions. A second thing they do excuse me, prophetic prediction serves the purpose of distinguishing a true prophet from a false prophet as well as a true God from a false God. The predictive element of prophecy reveals whether or not you're a true or a false prophet and whether or not God is the true God uh, contrary to the other false gods. Now, um, in the law, there are basically two main passages that outline uh, the means by which a, a, a true prophet is to be uh, distinguished from a false prophet. And um, I'm going to look at a couple of these passages. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 13, we'll look there. Um, Deuteronomy 13 and uh, verse 1 uh, to 3. Deuteronomy 13, verse uh, 1 to 3. And, and notice what it says here. It says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. But the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, the text goes on, but we'll, we'll just stop there for a moment and just notice the fact that one of the things that is being acknowledged is that it may be the case that a man arises, a woman arises, claiming to be a prophet, 
and they perform some sign. They perform some wonder. They may even say things that are true. But one of the things that proves that they are false prophets is if they are drawing you after other gods. If they work some miracle among you, and then they say, let's go worship Baal. Or they say, let's go worship Yahweh, and Yahweh is, a, is in the form of some golden calf, this, God is saying, is a false prophet. Just because they are doing miraculous things does not mean that they are automatically a true prophet because the Lord your God is testing you to see if you truly love him and him alone. Now, it, it's, it's interesting. I think there's, there's something that parallels this in the um, warnings that the Apostle Paul gives in, in 2 Thessalonians about the, the coming of the lawless one and all of these things that are going to surround that and the false signs and wonders that are performed by the activity of Satan. And one of the things that Paul says is that as a, a means of judgment, God will send people a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false because they refused to believe the truth and they loved the lie. It's something similar that's going on here. Sometimes a false prophet will be raised up by God himself to test the people to see if they will be faithful to him or not. So, one thing is it, it does not make somebody a prophet automatically if they are performing signs or wonders or if they are saying things um, that are indeed, um, that, that, that come true. Now, a related text is in Deuteronomy 18. And a, a lot of the same language is used here, but but here, um, this text is assuming that a, a prophet is, is now speaking in the name of the Lord, right? And, and, and how, do you, how do you know if he's a, if he's a true or false prophet in, in this regard? So if you look with me at Deuteronomy 18, I want to look specifically at uh, verses 20 uh, to 22. Deuteronomy 18, beginning in verse 20, we read... But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Now, let me, before we go on, let me just point out here, this false prophet that's being described, what's, what's he doing? He's, he's presuming. He's he hasn't received any word from God. He's either deceived himself into believing that he's a prophet, or he's just making things up. It is a very dangerous thing to do to speak in the name of the Lord, thus says the Lord, when you haven't received a single word. 
We've got all this talk that goes on to now, that goes on now. You know, have, have you received a word from the Lord? You know, what's the word of the Lord that you've, you've received today? And it's just something that, you know, it's got a, you got a feeling or an intuition. You don't do that. <laughs> a prophet hears directly from God, words from God, and he is tasked with saying those words exactly. Now, uh, going on, verse 21, it says, And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord uh, has not spoken? Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, thus says the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So clearly, one of the criteria for a true prophet per Deuteronomy 18 is that when they speak of things in the future, they must speak in the name of Yahweh, the true Yahweh, and the things that they say about the future must come true. Right? Their, their prophecy is intended to be able to be objectively verified. Right? You, can, you can receive the word, and then you know, when, when it says this is going to happen, it happens. Right? And if it doesn't happen, that prophet is a false prophet. Now, these are, these are very important um, criteria for evaluating um, prophecy. I remember when we were um, in Malawi, one of the things that the, the brothers were dealing with over there is that, of course, they, they have a lot of, of people who claim to be prophets still to this day. You know, many of them are you know, prosperity preachers and involved in witchcraft, and they do all kinds of signs and wonders. And um, the preachers are afraid of them. They're afraid of saying anything against them, lest a curse comes upon them, or lest they be speaking against one of God's prophets, right? So that was, that was an issue. It's like, what, what do we do with these men who, who seem to be performing these uh, miracles? And, uh, you know, they're saying, they're making all of these drastic claims. And, of course, we, we looked at Deuteronomy 13, we looked at Deuteronomy 18, where you have these clear tests of a prophet. And of course, um, many, probably all of the things that these false prophets over there claim never happen. You know, they're, they're tricks. It, they're, they're magicians, you know. It's like, uh, uh, what's the guy, Todd White, who, you know, <laughs> stretches someone's leg out, you know. He's got like one leg that's longer than the other, and then he just, he makes it even, you know. These are, these are tricks of the trade, if you will. And the things that they teach are are false teachings. And so we, we, we look through this, and, and, and it's interesting that at the end of Deuteronomy 18, what, what does Moses say? You need not be afraid of them. Don't be afraid. False prophets use manipulation. They still do that today. You speak against me, the Lord's anointed, a curse be on your head. And Moses is saying, you have no need at all 
to be afraid. If they are speaking lies, if they are false prophets, per the word of God, you have no need to fear. The word of God gives us tests for evaluating prophets. And one of the things that prophetic prediction does, this future-telling aspect of the prophet's ministry is that it confirms for everyone to see that they are indeed true prophets. I think this is why it's it's very important for us as, as Christians as well to be able to recognize from the Old Testament the truths of the Christian gospel. They were speaking about these things long ago. They spoke about things that were to happen in their own generation, which happened, and they spoke about things that were to come after those days, you know, in the latter days, which happened, especially in the coming of Christ. This future predictive aspect of prophecy serves the purpose of confirming the truthfulness of the prophets. Now, additionally, this prediction of the future was not only intended to distinguish a true prophet from a false prophet, but also the true God from false gods. If you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 46, we're going to look at a passage here real quick. Isaiah 46. And we'll look at verses 8 to 11. Isaiah 46, beginning in verse 8, we read, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Now, here determining the end from the beginning, speaking about things that are to come in the future, God Himself says is one of the things that distinguishes Him from all of these false gods that do not speak, that are mute, that cannot tell of things that have occurred from the past, nor can they tell of things that will come in the future. To be able to declare the beginning from the end is the, or one of the distinguishing marks of the true God in opposition to these false gods. And here also in this context, there is a prediction of bringing, God bringing a nation from the east, which elsewhere in Isaiah Um, particularly in Isaiah chapter 8 that we'll look at. This is a prediction of the coming of the Assyrian invasion. Um, So look with me. uh, We'll go back to to Isaiah chapter 
8, and just recognize, of course, Isaiah, like, like many of the, the prophetic books, they're not, you know, it's not like chapter 8 comes in a chronological um, order from Isaiah 46, right? They're, they're speaking about uh, the same things, even though they're in uh, different chapters here. But Isaiah chapter 8, this is where we also see um, the same topic being discussed about this nation from the east coming in judgment. And in, in chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse, we'll start in verse, um, where is it, verse 5, it says here, it says, the Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Now, now here in this prophecy, um, of course, the, the image of uh, water is, is being used. And, and the people of Judah are, are preferring uh, the water of rebellious nations. Uh, they're, they're preferring the, the water of, of Syria. Uh, they're preferring the, the water, the drink, the river of uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. They're, they're spurning God's water, His provision, His river. And so what does God say? He's, he's going to send the great river against them. It's a reference to the Euphrates River, which is also a reference to Assyria that He makes clear in that passage. And what He describes is this, this great river, the Assyrian Empire, is going to come into Judah and it's going to flood everything. And the waters are going to rise and it's going to rise until it gets to the point that it reaches up to their very neck. And it will be at that point that God will then save them. Now, this is exactly what happens when Assyria marches into Judah. They conquer Syria. They conquer Israel. And then they march into Judah and they conquer every single city in the nation with the exception of Jerusalem. The waters rise. They get up to the neck. And the only thing that is sticking out is the head. Jerusalem. And when that happens, when they are besieged by Assyria, it's then that God, in a divine judgment against Assyria, saves them. Now, this is one of the things, again, that, that Isaiah then later references in Isaiah 46 as well, and, and also in other places throughout the book. And it is proving to God's people, proving to the nations who the one true God is. Even though there is this mighty, conquering empire, God is still the sovereign. He's the one who's still in control. And so prophetic prediction also determines the true from the false prophets 
and the true God from false gods. Now, third, prophetic prediction given in written form pointed to the fact that the promised deliverance to come would take a while. The fact that they wrote many of these prophecies down was an indication that many of them would not, uh, in in fact, uh, come to fruition in their own generation, but in later generations. Now, the exile of Judah, which is already prophesied by Isaiah in the 750s B.C., uh, wouldn't even happen until 586 B.C., right? So, what is that, 170-so years after Isaiah's ministry. They were nearly completely conquered by the Assyrians, but Judah's exile did not occur until long after Isaiah was dead in 586 B.C. Moreover, their return from exile, which Isaiah also speaks about, would of course take even longer. And on top of this, the promise of the new covenant and the forgiveness of sins and the coming of the Messiah was something that was prophesied to come even after the exile. So we're talking even much, much further down the road here. And therefore, the writing of predictive prophecy taught the people who were receiving it, who were preserving it, to be patient and to trust in the plan of God that would unfold over long periods of time. Now, we see this particular idea communicated in the same chapter, Isaiah chapter 8, and uh, verses 16 to 22. We'll we'll look um, in particular at verse 16 to 20. And here um, we read this, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 16 says, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Now, In the context, Isaiah here is predicting, again, the coming Assyrian invasion. But he's also speaking of the fact that God Himself, you can see in verse 14, God Himself is going to be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to His people. This is something that ultimately happens in the coming of Christ. He is God incarnate, and He is the rock of offense that Israel stumbles over. And the sealed written testimony of Isaiah 
will serve as a witness against Israel even hundreds of years later. So he's speaking here in chapter 8 about some things that are coming on the near horizon while also speaking about things that would not ultimately reach their fulfillment until Christ comes some 700 or so years later. And it's written down as a testimony implying that later generations are to continue to hope in and wait for this word to be fulfilled. So, so that's just one of the aspects of the writing of these prophecies down implied that there were going to be many things that would take many generations until they were fulfilled. And the people of Israel, God's remnant of people, were to trust in His written Word. Now fourth, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll cover this uh, briefly and, and one more. Fourth, predictive prophecy emphasized the sovereignty of God over the nations. When he, long before any other nation arises to power, through the prophets, is saying, this is going to happen. Cyrus is going to be my servant. Right? Babylon is going to become a great empire that conquers Judah and many other nations. Babylon is also going to come to an end. Other nations like Persia and um, and the Greeks and the Romans, when the prophets, when God through the prophets is predicting the rise and the fall of these many mighty nations and empires, one of the things he's doing for his people and communicating to the whole world is that he is the lone sovereign. He is the king of all kings. There is nothing that happens in the world apart from His sovereign hand. So even when things appear to be utterly dark, when it appears that He is not in control at all, the fact that He is declaring the end from the beginning teaches us, His people, that He is always in control. And then lastly... Predictive prophecy revealed God's continued faithfulness to His people despite their covenant violations. So, obviously not everything that the prophets wrote was just about the coming judgment. They also spoke about what would happen in the latter days, in the days after the return from exile, and these days would be characterized by blessings for His people. These days would be the days that would see the coming of the servant of the Lord and, and His Messiah. The restoration of God's people and the nations streaming to the King. So, so as God is um, making these promises of coming, blessings to come uh, as well, um, it revealed to His people, as it does even for us now, that God, despite our many sins, despite our covenant violations, will continue to be faithful. So we can trust in Him, we can hope in Him, 
and we can be assured that all of His words of blessings as, as well will come to fruition. All right, so those are, those are five things in particular that when we're looking at um, fu- the future-telling aspect of the prophet's ministry, these are five things in particular that um, were being accomplished uh, through it. It was not, and we'll close with this, but it, it was not about um, just telling about random events that were disconnected to God's revealed plans, right? Sometimes in these more, you know, popular doomsday prophecy books. I mean, that, that's the kind of things that you, you find. It's a, you know, an author goes into, I don't know, like Isaiah 11 or something, and he finds some image there, and he's like, oh, that's about uh, President Obama becoming the president in America. And it's like, that has nothing to do with that. It, it would serve um, no purpose at all for God's people. The things that are foretold to come in the future, whether that be cursings or whether that be blessings, are always tied to his revealed purposes that he's working out through his covenants. It's not just a sort of a show off and, hey, guess what? In 3,000 years, this is going to happen. No, there there are redemptive purposes uh, to it. So I'm going to stop there, see if you guys have any uh, questions or anything you want to explore further, and uh, if not, we'll, we'll close with prayer. Um, well, I don't, I don't think there were like volumes and volumes of, you know, prophetic writings that have just been uh, lost to us. I mean, yes, we have everything that God intended for his people to have. Um, but, I mean, we know even from the book of Jeremiah that he, he wrote down um, prophetic words, things that were to happen, and then they were ripped up by a, a worthless king, right? So, I mean, those are things that he had written and uh, then he had to rewrite them, you know. Um, so, I mean, there, there could have been, you know, things like that that have been, for various reasons, uh, lost. But, you know, it's kind of the same with uh, even uh, when you read the New Testament. Um, there are letters uh, that, that Paul wrote or that Peter wrote. We don't have them, you know. Um, there's multiple correspondences that we know about from First and Second Corinthians, uh, but, the, but that we don't have. Uh, but again, we, we have everything that God intended for his people to have. Yeah. All right. All right, well, let's uh, close with a word of prayer then, okay?